This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us, and I pray that you would once again speak to us through it by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, I was in a store on July the 3rd, and the person at the checkout, uh, hearing my accent, uh, asked me, without any guile, so how, how do you celebrate uh, July 4th in England? To which I responded, well, actually, uh, we don't. For an American, however, the adoption of the Declaration of Independence 244 years ago is a day worth celebrating for all kinds of reasons. That first July 4th, and in a sense every July 4th since, is a reminder of what this nation stands for. It's a day of promise and hope, a day to remember the throwing off of the shackles of a foreign power, though I won't be dwelling on that. Uh, for many, it's a day of freedom, of opportunity, of success and happiness. And I have to say, I count it as a real privilege and an honor to be an American citizen. I have pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. It's a great pledge, a great and noble ideal. And yet, sadly, it does not often, or sometimes, depending on your perspective, but it does not always reflect the reality of our nation. For we are divided, we are conflicted, Many scorn the name of God and do not for one moment see themselves as being under his authority. Liberty and justice for all? Not so much. We have seen too often how this is not the case for many people, for many people of color, for those who are poor or refugees, and on and on we could go. The flip side of being a citizen of the greatest military and economic power in the world can be the arrogance and entitlement that I, with many others, can so easily adopt. While we celebrate many of the freedoms, laws, and privileges of this great nation, as Christians, we do so, I hope, with some reservations with humility and with the profound acknowledgement that America is not God's chosen nation. We're not as great as we might like to think that we are. We are a nation of contradictions, a nation where you may experience extraordinary generosity and kindness and a willingness to serve others. I have certainly been the recipient of all of these things. 
And yet we are also a nation that exhibits shocking displays of injustice, of hatred and violence. And while I have not been on the receiving end of those things, too many of our fellow Americans have. Though the nation as we know it began with a revolution and many high ideals, and though still today we have much in our history that is good and noble, we are also a nation that has repeatedly turned its back on God. We are a nation in which often the weakest and most vulnerable get trampled. From the throwaway attitude toward the lives of the unborn, to the ignoring of basic human rights for many immigrants, to the deep-rooted and pervasive racism that continues to be present in our land. Clearly, some are more equal than others. One of the things that I really love about America is the can-do mentality. Seemingly impossible goals are set and achieved. But alongside this, there is often a self-reliance, a sort of what I call a bootstrapism. And by that I mean the idea that anyone can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps if they will simply work hard enough. And I think this way of thinking permeates the church. There can be a type of legalism that does not set us free, but rather burdens us and crushes us with its demands to try harder. It is this conflict in our lives and in the church that we see St. Paul addressing in our passage from Romans today. He wrestles with the inner conflict he experiences between the good that he wants to do and what he actually does. A few verses prior to where we picked up the reading this morning, Paul had lamented, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And he goes on to describe this war that rages in his mind and in his body. And by the time we get to verse 24, which we heard a moment ago, Paul writes, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? What is clear is that no amount of sheer willpower or trying harder or determination will ever enable him to keep God's law. But we need not despair. In the face of the stark contrast between the goodness of God's law and our inability to keep it, St. Paul has some important and helpful teaching for us. First, St. Paul reminds us that a revolution has taken place, not concerning the British in 1776, but against the ruling power of sin. More specifically, he reminds us that Christians daily face a battle as they struggle to do what God wants and not what our enemy wants. And that battle can be very burdensome and wearying and it can get us down. But the point Paul is making is that the very fact that there is a battle is evidence that a revolution is taking place. And this revolution is brought to final victory through the work of God himself. The Christian is not only a forgiven sinner, he or she is that, 
but he or she is also a person who is continually being renewed by the Holy Spirit. So for those who have turned to Christ and received his forgiveness, a revolution has taken place. Yet in what feels like a bit of a roller coaster ride, Paul goes on to remind us, secondly, that our experience feels less like victory and more like defeat, more like going down than going up. Our experience so often is of wretchedness in our day-to-day lives. It's possible even for the mature Christian person to say, as Paul does in verse 24, wretched man, wretched woman that I am. For despite the presence of God's Spirit, Paul still experiences a constant performance gap. He wants to do what is right. He really does. And yet he keeps on doing what is wrong. The revolution is far from complete and only comes about supernaturally in and through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Paul urges us in chapter 6, verse 5, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So we're to think about, look for, and pray for the presence and power of the Spirit, even in the ups and downs of our roller coaster lives. I wonder how do you rate your experience of this this morning? Are you frustrated with yourself? If you are, then I want to suggest that this can be a healthy sign. According to this passage, at least, it's a sign of life. It's a sign that we are a people in whom God's Spirit dwells. So this week, let's be on the lookout for where we can see evidence of God at work in our lives and around us. If your sin troubles you, the fact that you notice it, that's a good thing. Indeed, often it's the person who's been a Christian the longest who most laments the ongoing presence of sin in their lives. Well, thirdly, St. Paul points us to the source of our hope in answer to the desperate cry of who will rescue me from this body of death. Paul gives the resounding answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The ultimate power of sin is defeated by Jesus. The inward conflict that we so often experience is not how it will be forever. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and one day there will be a final solution. Christ will come again. And then the historic revolution inaugurated on the cross will be completed. One day we will experience no more wretchedness. For when Christ returns, he will rescue us from our bodies of death. And this is not just a distant longing, for there is hope and help in the midst of the conflict. You know, the enemy, our enemy, the Satan, the devil, loves to tell us what complete failures we are, what useless Christians we are, and how we ought to just throw in the towel because of our wretchedness. But transformation and victory don't happen overnight. Elsewhere, St. Paul reminds us that believers are being changed from one degree of glory to another. 
we can and should expect to experience a progressive strengthening of our spiritual desires and a renewing of our minds. And of course we'll fall flat on our, flat on our faces time and time again. Life is tough. We will fail. We are all very much works in progress. But rather than get bogged down by that, let us keep lifting up our eyes to Jesus, seeking his help and his comfort. If July the 4th was the day for us to celebrate our independence, I want to suggest that we take time today, July the 5th, to remember our dependence. Ultimately, as a nation, as a church, and as individuals, we are utterly dependent upon God. For all the good that may have come from the revolution of the late 1770s, it has not given the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness it promised. That revolution never could bring us the rescue we all need, the ultimate revolution that brings eternal life, liberty from sin, and lasting happiness was accomplished long before on the cross. If we are dependent on our own independence, God help us. And yet, tragically, you know, that's the spirit of our age. Rabid individualism reigns where each person is taught to think that he or she should be dependent on no one else. Where all are expected to find their own truth, their own way. What a nightmare. What extraordinary pressure we are putting on our young people if we tell them that that's the way things are. It is scandalous and shocking and tragic. The good news, however, is that even in the midst of all the turmoil of these days, political, social, personal, there is hope. As we saw in our gospel reading, to those who are feeling tired and weary, disillusioned or disappointed, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. But you know, it's striking what Jesus says in this this short verse. He doesn't say, come and sit yourself down, put your feet up, and I'll wait on you. He doesn't say, leave it to me, I'll deal with all the turmoil. What he says is, take my yoke upon you, which is not what we might expect or want to hear. After all, a yoke is about hard work. Indeed, a yoke is an instrument of control, and not our control over another's, but another's control over us. A yoke in agriculture is used to harness two animals, to pull a plow, and they walk side by side. Well, here, Jesus invites us to be yoked to him, to work with him at our side. And he promises that he will teach us and that we can learn from him. And though he is the Lord of lords, he does not come as one lording it over us, but as one who comes alongside us, as a teacher who is gentle and humble in heart. And the outcome of this kind of 
working and walking through life is rest for our souls. Theologian Dale Bruner sheds some really helpful light on this. Uh, he writes this, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. For in the final analysis, realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment, his yoke. So this Independence Day weekend, I invite you to remember your dependence upon God. And I urge you to take up the instrument of that dependence, the yoke of Jesus. And know this, the yoke of not living the Jesus way is terrible. The yoke of having to make your own way and your own truth is a living hell. The burden of figuring everything out for yourself, by yourself, in the face of a million voices, is a crushing and demanding burden in the hands of a cruel taskmaster. So hear again the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you that are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Amen.